Aside podcast. This is the podcast where we will take a look at the things that happen just beyond the pages of your history book, at the people, places, and ideas that may have been mentioned in passing, but play a much larger role in the story. My name is Josh Burns, and I'll be your host as we take a look at our first topic, Mithridates VI, King of Pontus, the Poison King. In 1987, moviegoers retreated to the movie The Princess Bride, a charming, timeless tale of Princess Buttercup and her love, Wesley. In one of the most memorable scenes in the movie, Wesley, played by the wonderful Carrie Elwes, faces off against the, vis- the villainous Vicini, played by the also wonderful Wallace Shawn. This battle focuses on which of the, t- of the two cups placed between the two combatants of the mind is poisoned. Vicini, making his choice, distracts Wesley, swaps the cups, and then very nervously takes a sip. Wesley, never blinking, just goes for it. Vicini, thinking he's won, utters the classic line, Never go in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! And then promptly falls over. Wesley, rather nonchalantly, proclaims, I've spent the last few years building up immunity to Iocane powder. Now, this is a hilarious exchange and a hilariously awesome line. And don't worry, we'll come back to the never get involved in a land war in Asia line in a future episode. This exchange is fun in that it helps to eliminate the Vicini character and sets Wesley up as an intelligent protagonist. The fictional Iocane powder mentioned in the battle is kind of a silly plot device on first viewing, as well as the throwaway explanation of just building up an immunity to a poison that is colorless, tasteless, odorless, just so that the good guy can come out on top. But maybe the filmmakers were onto something, intentionally or not, because there is a historical precedent for someone trying to make himself poison-proof. But before we get to all that, we need to set up the scene a little bit. It is sometime in the pre-Roman Empire in the Mediterranean world. Now, we're all familiar with Rome, right? Builders of one of the most successful empires in history. Emperors, gladiators, the people, not really the movie, but kind of. Senators, Cicero, Julius Caesar, Pompey, the Pax Romana, the Crucifixion. You know, those guys. This story takes place before most of that. Before the Roman Empire, there was the Roman Republic. Though the Republic was weak internally and was highly susceptible to rampant corruption, bribery, and not so far off in the future bloody purges, it had established itself as the big dog in Italy and in most of the Mediterranean world. Soon afterward, Rome began to expand its sphere of influence, culture, and military across the Mediterranean Sea, all in the name of protecting the Roman wolf's interests and Rome itself. Who better to protect Rome and its interests and interest meaning money-making opportunities, than the Roman legions. For the people that were, quote, quote, fortunate enough to be under the protection of the Romans, this meant taxation, slavery, all kinds of oppression. Puppet rulers and client kings ruled through the blessing of the Roman Senate. Naturally, this meant that Rome had a lot of enemies who would have loved to see them destroyed. The problem was that no one seemed to be able to overcome the might of the Roman wolf's legions. Naturally, prophecies began to spring up predicting Rome's downfall. Oracles in Rome, Egypt, and Persia began speaking of a great king in the east who would come and destroy Rome's power. Even zombies got in on the act. According to to sources, in 191 BC, the Romans defeated the Seleucid king at Thermopylae in Greece. Yeah, the same Thermopylae where King This-Is-Sparta Leonidas defeated the Persians. Anyway... 
Following the battle, a dead Syrian soldier rose up and rasped out a warning that a bold-hearted tribe would be sent by Zeus to punish the Romans for their sins in Greece and Asia. Naturally, this freaked the Romans out, but not as much as what happened next. Phlegon of Trales, and I hope I'm pronouncing that name right, a Greek writing in the 2nd sec century AD, claims that the day after that battle, Publius, a Roman general, began raving and screaming while describing the horrible atrocities and terrible wars that were, to be, that were to come. Publius foretold the coming of a king from the east who would raise a grand army to obliterate Rome. Apparently, he wanted to make sure that the soldiers believed him because he then climbed a tree and declared that he would be eaten by a wolf. Now, if Flagon is to be believed, a wolf came and did just that, killing and eating the general, leaving only the head behind, which continued to predict doom and gloom for Rome. Now, Flagon was recounting this story in the 2nd century AD, almost 200 years after the events were supposed to have taken place. Things may have been a teensy bit exaggerated, just a little bit. In any case, the Romans, who were highly superstitious to begin with, must have been more than a little freaked out and on edge any time prophecies like this came up. Then in 135 BC, a comet shot across the night sky. For the people of Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, the comet was the fulfillment of a prophecy signaling the birth of a savior king who would lead the people to triumph over their enemies. For the Romans, this comet was a harbinger of the doom that had already been foretold over and over again. In the small kingdom of Pontus, on the Black Sea, a child was born who had seemed to fulfill the prophecies. His name was Mithridates VI, Eupater. Eupater means good father, and we'll get into that later. Mithridates VI's story is one that is steeped in small doses of myth and symbolism, along with a healthy amount of prophecy and propaganda. Now, not much is known about the childhood of our new friend Mithridates VI, but we do have a good idea of his actual and mythological lineage. First, the actual. Through his father, Mithridates V, our Mithridates VI, was able to trace his bloodline back to two greats, capital G greats, of the Persian Empire. Cyrus, the founder, and Darius, who ruled the empire at its peak. His mother, Laodice, was descended from one of Alexander the Great's generals, a guy named Seleucus, the founder of the Seleucid Empire. Now for the mythological. Mithridates may have shared a characteristic of a more modern great by supposedly possessing a scar on his forehead from a bolt of lightning. Similar, I like to imagine, to the boy who lived, Mr. Harry Potter of Gryffindor House of Hogwarts. Anyway, like many ancient rulers, Mithridates claimed mythic descent from Hercules, also known as Heracles. Numerous depictions of Mithridates show him to be wearing the signature cloak of Nemean lion skin that is traditionally associated with the Greek demigod. Another thing we know about our friend Mithridates is that he is seemingly obsessed with Alexander the Great. Coins from the era show that Mithridates copied the long hairstyle and fashion choices of Alexander in defiance of the traditional ways of clothing himself. While the majority of the Greek-speaking people favored the traditional toga and sandals look that we are all familiar with, Mithridates is said to have favored a more Persian style of dress with Persian-style trousers, a purple-hemmed white tunic belted with a jeweled Persian sash. He is supposed to have worn leather boots with upturned toes and a simple diadem of purple and white ribbon resting on his long, flowing hair. He was also supposed to have possessed a purple cloak worn by Alexander. Whether this cloak was the real deal or not, Pompey the Great would later claim this prize, most likely based on that assumption.
But before we get too much further into Mithridates' story, we need to answer two very important questions. One, where in the world is Pontus? And two, why is this place so special? Pontus was a small kingdom that lay on the southern coast of the Black Sea in Anatolia. In Mithridates' time, it was a fertile land that sat near enough to trade routes to become a rich kingdom. The region was originally part of the Persian satrapy, the equivalent of a province, of Cappadocia. By Mithridates' time, however, the land was a Hellenized land, with Greek being spoken, Greek-style togas being worn, and Greek religious practices blending with the local practices. Deities of both the Greeks and the Persians could be found here, and some Greek legends claim that the land was the home of the famed warrior Amazons. All of this Hellenization was present largely through a capital-G great guy named Alexander, who is popping up quite frequently, I must say. Historically significant people, am I right? Pontus was a land dotted by iron, silver, and copper mines. Arsenic, a poisonous substance which will be crucial in our story later, was also readily available. The land, it seems, was one of dangerous poisons from the flora all the way to the fauna. Consider Pontic ducks and honeybees, for example. The ducks feasted on the local hellebore plants, while the bees made their honey from the oleander and rhododendrons common in the area. Sounds great, right? Nothing out of the ordinary. Except that eating a duck raised on hellebore or eating the oleander or rhododendron honey could cause humans to break out in a bad case of poison-fueled deadness. Like our friend Wesley from the Princess Pride, the animals enjoyed an immunity to the effects of these plants, but not so much for the humans. Of greater importance, Pontus sat along land trade routes as well as coastal ones. Its location turned it into both an economic and cultural crossroad that allowed it to become a rich land with a large amalgamation of people groups and languages. According to Pliny the Elder's account, Mithridates was able to speak 22 languages fluently, an ability that would be invaluable in this region. Now, 22 languages is just crazy. The guy never needed an interpreter and could talk to just about anyone he met. From a leadership standpoint, this must have been huge since he could clearly communicate with his soldiers in their own language. But as incredible as that sounds, his abilities as a polygot are only the beginning. He liked to do a number of things ranging from the familiar to the hard to believe, such as his horsemanship. He is supposed to have been an expert horseman with the ability and skill to drive a 16-horse chariot. Other rulers that followed after him that tried to follow an example like Nero of Rome almost died while trying to replicate this skill with fewer animals. He's supposed to have been a skilled bowman, wrestler, boxer, javelin thrower, and hand-to-hand -hand fighter. He was also a fitness nut, enjoying weightlifting and running. Deer hunting was especially interesting for him. Sources claim that he could chase deer down and tackle them in order to deliver the killing blow. I guess shooting one with a bow and arrow was too easy. He also liked to host horse and chariot races, along with parties that included everyone from jesters and fire jugglers and snake handlers, all the way to contortionists, poets, actors, and musicians. These parties also featured drinking contests, eating contests, and partridges in a pear tree. Probably not that last one, but the man knew how to have a good time. In those drinking and eating contests, Mithridates was known to offer valuable prizes to anyone who could outdrink or out-eat him. Those sources say he didn't lose very often, but when he did, he was a good sport about it. He was also supposed to have had a massive gem collection 
and a resort-style hunting lodge featuring lions, bears, mongooses, and ostriches. Also, when he wasn't hunting down and powerbombing Bambi, Mithridates was a student of Greek philosophy and culture, studying the strategies and tactics of famous military commanders, chief of which was, you guessed it, Alexander the Great. Okay, so we have a king who is rich, physically impressive, threw lavish parties, killed game animals with his bare hands, and had an extreme fascination with Alexander the Great. But what did he like to do in his spare time? This is one of the things that elevated Mithridates from the ranks of interesting kings to the upper echelons of legendary kings. Mithridates VI had a deep interest in poisons and antidotes. He was utterly fascinated with them and devoted himself to their study. This likely started when he was a boy with the untimely death of his father, Mithridates V, who died in 120 BC. Sources tell us that during a banquet in that year, 120 BC, Mithridates V suddenly clutched his throat and fell over dead. No assassin has ever been named, but Mithridates VI always suspected his mother, Laodice. This was very bad for our friend, as he did not appear to be the favored son of his mother, and in those days, non-favored sons tended not to live very long if they were seen as a threat. What killed Mithridates V? His son, Mithridates VI, our Mithridates, and I know this is getting confusing with 5th and 6th, but Mithridates VI suspected that his father had been murdered by drinking arsenic. This odorless, tasteless poison could be extracted from the numerous Pontic mines around the area. Poison was the easiest and most covert way to eliminate a rival, so Mithridates VI had to worry about protecting himself from a substance that could be slipped into anything he ate or drank. Protecting yourself against an assassin's blade certainly isn't easy, but it can be done. But how to protect against poison? Mithridates had found a way and it would make him famous. He discovered that by ingesting tiny amounts of arsenic each day, he could build up an immunity to larger doses. This practice, appropriately called Mithridatism, has since been scientifically proven not to be effective against all poisons, so don't try this at home. Please don't do it. The practice of Mithridatism involved taking small, non-lethal doses of the desired poison, often with the hope of the body building up an immunity to the substance. In addition to making himself immune to poison damage, Mithridates sought to create a universal antidote that would counteract any poison. The idea of this universal antidote, or Mithridatum, would become legendary and would be passed down through the ages with various recipes popping up all over the place. Some swore by its effectiveness, while others scoffed. In his Natural History, written around A.D. 77, Pliny the Elder states, quote, The Mithridatic antidote is composed of 54 ingredients, no two of them having the same weight, while of some is prescribed one sixtieth part of one denarius. Which of the gods, in the name of truth, fixed these absurd proportions? No human brain could have been sharp enough. It is plainly a showy parade of the art and a colossal boast of science. End quote. So he wasn't a fan. Now, Mithridates could have been following the example of King Attalus of Pergamon. Attalus was a reclusive and paranoid king. He is supposed to have spent most of his time in his gardens, tending his plants and studying botany and pharmacology, favoring those pursuits over running his kingdom. Marcus Junaeus Justinus Frontinus, or simply Justin, the ancient Latin historian, claimed that the king was insane. Justin notes that Attalus drenched mixtures of healthful plants 
with poisonous ones, which would then be given as gifts. Plutarch claims Attalus grew poisonous plants and became an expert in the use of their juices and fruits. And the ancient physician Galen claims that Attalus experimented with the poisons of various animals, like scorpions, sea slugs, and spiders. Galen was also proud that Attalus only tested his mixtures on condemned criminals. Just like King Attalus, Mithridates cultivated a poison garden where he kept detailed manuals on pharmacology along with colored paintings and hundreds of medicinal plants. He is supposed to have had a group of Scythian shamans with him who were able to turn snake venom into various forms of medicine. Pliny tells us that Mithridates kept flocks of those poisonous Pontic ducks we mentioned earlier, hoping that by mixing the duck blood into his antidotes that he would be able to live on the poisons. So back to the story. Mithridates' father was dead by poison, and while Mithridates may have had some small measure of protection from the various poisons in his realm, he was still vulnerable to the other, more pointy means of executing someone. Our friend decided that getting out of the capital city of Sinope was best for his long-term health. Mithridates' reputation for hypervigilance was well-known and probably exaggerated. He certainly tried to take measures to protect himself. He always wore his dagger, even when dining with his friends. He always kept his bow and quiver within easy reach and owned several short knives that could be concealed on his body. One story from his later military campaigns says that he used a horse, a bull, and a stag to protect his tent. Allegedly, these animals had been trained to detect intruders and to raise the alarm if anyone tried to approach the tent. Anyway, Mithridates left the capital city of Sinope with a small group of his closest and most trusted friends and did not return for seven years. He left in secret, and what he did during those seven years is still a mystery. He and his companions may have lived among the common people, learning the thoughts and feelings that they had toward their rulers and other things that would have been important to the common people. I imagine, given that what follows of this story, the Mithridates found out what the people thought about Rome and Roman legions. As conquerors and general meddlers in the affairs of people in places who were not like them, Rome wasn't especially well-liked among the people who were forced to pay for the Roman war machine. Seven years later, he returned to Sinope. In a bloodless coup, Mithridates entered Sinope and took over. His mother, Queen Laodice, died mysteriously in prison, and her son, Mithridates the Good, the brother of our Mithridates, get new names, seriously, he didn't live too long after that. Some sources state that Mithridates killed his mother and brother himself, but no one really knows for sure. For the people, the sudden reappearance of Mithridates probably reminded them of prophesied savior kings who would help them throw off their oppressors, and the heavens seemed to indicate this as well. In 119 BC, when Mithridates was crowned king of Pontus, another comet appeared in the sky. This, for people of Persian-influenced lands, was an affirmation from the Persian god Mithra that Mithridates, who he was named after that god, would rescue them from Rome, as was foretold by prophecy and by the comet that appeared in 135 when he was born. As Mithridates took the throne, he was certainly very busy. He began strengthening his military by recruiting mercenaries and training cavalry and war chariots. He built up his navy and hired pirates to help supplement his forces. He also built fortresses and strongholds designed to, to withstand prolonged sieges. And importantly, he began stashing gold and precious jewels all over his kingdom, saving them for a rainy day. Sometime in 110 to 108 BC, 
The historian Justin tells us that Mithridates left Sinope suddenly and traveled throughout Anatolia, surveying the land and gathering intelligence. He did this without telling anyone where he was going ahead of time. But he and his royal companions made stops in Bithynia, Galatia, Paphlagonia, Rhodes, Ephesus, and Pergamon, to name a few. He was gone so long that his sister wife, Queen Laodice, feared that he was dead. Justin says, quote, But amidst the congratulations that he received on his arrival and on the birth of his son, he was in danger of being poisoned, for his sister and wife Laodice, believing him dead, had yielded herself to the embraces of his friends, and, as if she could conceal the crime of which she had been guilty, by a greater, prepared poison for him on his return. Mithridates, however, having notice of her intention from a female servant, avenged the plot upon the heads of its contrivers. End quote. So, in other words, while Mithridates was gone, Queen Laodice had an affair with some of his friends and other people when, he, when Mithridates returned, congratulating him on the birth of his son, which was not his. We don't know exactly how Laodice was executed, but poison cannot be ruled out. Following this personal tragedy, Mithridates threw himself into training and exercise. He worked out with his army, pushing both his soldiers and himself to their physical limits, and shared in their fatigue. He then formed an alliance with King Nicomedes of Bithynia and invaded Paphlagonia, because what better way to get over executing the queen than by invading a kingdom? Naturally, a region-destabilizing invasion brought the Romans into the middle of everything. The Roman Senate demanded the reinstatement of the Paphlagonian king. Mithridates argued that Paphlagonia actually belonged to his father by inheritance, but Nicomedes took a far sneakier tactic. Promising Rome that he would restore Paphlagonia's rightful ruler, Nicomedes renamed one of his own sons, calling him Pylomenes, a traditional Paphlagonian king name, and installed his son as the king of Paphlagonia. Unswayed by Rome's demands, Mithridates also invaded and took over part of Galatia. While all this is happening, Mithridates sought to retake control of the kingdom of Cappadocia by eliminating King Ariathes VI. This would have put the kingdom under the rule of Mithridates' other sister, yet another Laodice. Come up with different names, please. Nicomedes, seeing a land without a king, seized and occupied Cappadocia. Mithridates rushed to his sister's aid, only to find that she had agreed to marry Nicomedes instead. Angered, Mithridates defeated the Bithynian army and sent the tre treacherous Nicomedes and Laodice back to their own kingdom. With the backstabbers now taken care of, Mithridates turned now to try to exert some influence over the new Cappadocian king, his nephew, Ariathes VII. But there was a problem. Mithridates appointed a man named Gordius to be Ariathes' mentor, guardian, and puppet master. Now, Gordius had murdered the previous king, Ariathes VI, on Mithridates' orders. Since Ariathes VI was Ariathes VII's father, naturally the newly ascended king wasn't going to cooperate. Battle lines were formed with the two sides bringing armies that were almost evenly matched. Seeing that the young king's army was similar in strength to his own, Mithridates turned to other means to get what he wanted. He called for a conference with Ariathes VII in the no-man's land between the two armies. 
Ariathes agreed and sent some of his men to frisk his uncle to make sure that there were no weapons on his person. Now this is a part where Mithridates shows his more crude side and his more vicious side, so heads up there. Having his uncle searched was a wise move on Ariathes' part, because we are told that Mithridates did, in fact, have a weapon concealed along his inner thigh. As the searchers got close to his groin area, Justin tells us that Mithridates made a joke by saying of the searcher, quote, he had better take care lest he should find another sort of weapon than he was seeking, end quote. The weapon remained undetected, and the two kings conferred in the middle of the two armies. Suddenly Mithridates drew his concealed weapon and killed his nephew in full view of both armies. He then took his eight-year-old son, called him Ariarathes, and put him on the Cappadocian throne with Gordius as his guardian. So at this point in our story, Mithridates has so far taken firm control over his kingdom, built up his military, and installed his young son as the pseudo-ruler of the kingdom of Cappadocia. Naturally, all of this action to their east attracted the attentions of the Romans, who promptly began sticking their noses into everything. Into our story steps Manius Aquilius. Aquilius was sent by the Senate in 90 BC, tasked with imposing some order in Anatolia. Before he even left Rome, he had the odds stacked against him. Aquilius was a son of Manius Aquilius the Elder, a Roman governor who was infamous for corruption, taking bribes and profiteering mostly, but he was never punished for his actions in the East. The younger Aquilius probably expected to be able to continue in that tradition while on his mission. The new Manius Aquilius ordered Nicomedes' army to invade Pontus. According to Appian, Mithridates personally commanded his troops in this battle against the Romans and their Bithynian allies. We are told that Mithridates not only wanted to overwhelm his opponents, but also wanted a chance to display the massive amount of wealth at his disposal. We are told that the hoplites, archers, slingers, and other foot soldiers were equipped with beautifully crafted bronze helmets and breastplates. Their shields were adorned with jewels and they carried gilded spears. The cavalry were similarly equipped along with ornamental decorations for the horses themselves. Mithridates had, in the words of John Hammond from Jurassic Park, spared no expense in making his troops look good. And the Pontic army, we are told, was massive. Memnon tells us that Mithridates' army had 190,000 infantry and 10,000 cavalry. Appian puts the numbers even higher at 250,000 foot soldiers and 50,000 cavalry. These numbers are disputed by modern historians, but the main point is that the Pontic army was huge. Mithridates also had a secret weapon that could be used to devastatingly deadly effect. For the squeamish, you may want to skip this part. Hidden behind his main army were 130 scythe chariots. Now, chariots had been around for thousands of years and by this point had fallen out of fashion. At this point, chariots were mainly used in racing or in parades, Scythe chariots with rotating sickle-shaped blades built onto the axles were themselves nothing new, having been used when Alexander the Great invaded the Persian Empire. Since then, chariots had not really been seen on battlefields, as the horse-drawn carts were hampered by the terrain and were not as maneuverable as a man on horseback. Hundreds of years later, as the battle was joined between Nicomedes and Mithridates, 
The invading Bithynians found themselves bunched together in formation, with fighting on two sides. Not exactly an ideal situation. In the confusion, Mithridates unleashed his chariots. Bladed wheels advanced quickly on the distracted Bithynians. Years later, Lucretius wrote a description of the effect that scythe chariots had on soldiers unfortunate enough to encounter them in battle. His description may have been based off of memories from survivors, and is definitely not for the squeamish. In a scene straight out of the opening of Saving Private Ryan, Lucretius tells us, quote, We hear how chariots of war areek, with hurly slaughter, lop with flashing sides, the limbs away, so suddenly that there, fallen from the trunk, they quiver on the earth, while the mind and powers of the man can feel no pain for swiftness of his hurt, and sheer abandon in the zest of battle, with the remainder of his frame he seeks, anew the battle and the slaughter, nor marks how the swift wheels and sides of raven have dragged off with the horses his left arm and shield, nor other how his right has dropped away, mounting again and on. A third attempts with leg dismembered to arise and stand, whilst on the ground hard by the dying foot twitches its spreading toes, and even the head, when from the warm and living trunk lopped off, keeps on the ground the vital countenance and open eyes until it is rendered up all rem remnants of the soul. End quote. Imagine that for a moment. In the heat of battle, you are so amped up and in the thick of the adrenaline rush that you don't notice that your entire arm and shield are just gone from your body. Or, more likely, you're in a confusing mass of people, scared out of your mind, and you trip and fall because you don't notice that one of your legs is just gone. If you get hit in just the right way, you're dead before you even realize it. Now, in 331 BC, in a battle at a place called Gagamela, Darius III of Persia unsuccessfully tried to use scythe chariots against Alexander's army. Unfazed, Alexander's men, were told, simply broke ranks, separated, and let the scythe chariots pass harmlessly through. Years later, the Romans and Bithynians were not so lucky. Appian tells us that the Bithynians were horrified to see their, quote, mangled comrades sliced in two and still breathing, hanging on the sides, end quote. Appian goes on to say that the ranks scattered in confusion due, in part, to the hideousness of the slaughter. Nicomedes escaped and his army surrendered. In a display of Alexander and later Julius Caesar-like clemency, Mithridates announced that not only were the enemy soldiers free to go, but they would also receive provisions, food, and money to allow them to return to their homes. Many went home, but many more joined Mithridates' army. Why not? The king was rich, lenient, and generous. Returning to the Romans, meanwhile, Nicomedes described the carnage of the battle. Manius Aquilius was horrified to hear the account of the battle, and were told that he and the other Romans realized that they had picked a fight without thinking everything through. If you're going to invade a piece of land, you really should make sure that you can keep control of it with your army. In ancient warfare, killing happened naturally on the course of the battle, but it wasn't really until one side gave in to fear that the killing turned into slaughter. The Greeks attributed this to Phobos, the god of fear. Phobos and his siblings, Demos, Terror, and Inyo, Discord, hung out with Ares, the god of war, 
and all were said to walk through battlefields, affecting outcomes and bending the battle to their will. When fear and terror took hold, the natural response was to flee. Nicomedes had definitely fled. Fresh off defeat at Mithridates' hands, he stumbled into Manius Aquilius's camp with the enemy fast on his heels. Battle followed battle as Nicomedes and his Roman allies tried desperately to avoid capture. Pushing further and further westward, Mithridates liberated city after city from their Roman oppressors. As time went on, Mithridates enjoyed a string of success that historians today still marvel at. In her book, The Poison King, author Adrian Meyer states that in less than a year, Mithridates had gone from a minor king of a rich little realm on the Black Sea to one of the most powerful rulers in the ancient world. On the Roman side of things, Nicomedes was sailing to Rome while Manius Aquilius headed that way through the city of Mytilene on the Isle of Lesbos. From Lesbos, Aquilius hoped to work his way back to Rome, but he never got there. The citizens of Mytilene had at some point sided with Mithridates. They captured the Roman governor, placed him in chains, and handed him over to Mithridates' troops. In a humiliating display, Aquilius was paraded in front of jeering crowds and forced to repeat his name and to confess the crimes that he had committed against the people of Anatolia. Each step brought him closer to Pergamon, where Mithridates awaited to pronounce judgment. No doubt Phobos and Demos walked with Aquilius along the way. Imagine for a moment that you are in Aquilius's sandals. He was hated by the people because of his taxation policies, his father's taxation policies, because he was a Roman, and because he had been at the head of an invasion force. His army had fled, or worse, sided with his enemy, and his allies were fleeing west, and he is being led in chains to his sworn enemy, being forced to confess his crimes over and over and over again the whole way there. Nothing about this is good for him. Appian and Pliny the Elder both relate what happened when he arrived in Pergamon. In short, almost trite sentences, the two historians describe Aquilius's fate. From Appian, quote, Finally, at Pergamon, Mithridates poured molten gold down his, Aquilius's, throat, thus rebuking the Romans for their bribe-taking, end quote. From Pliny the Elder, quote, nor was it now any individual citizen, but the universal Roman name that had been rendered infamous by avarice when King Mithridates caused molten gold to be poured into the mouth of Aquilius, the Roman general, whom he had taken prisoner. Such were the results of cupidity. End quote. All right, that's where we'll end it this time. Thank you so much for listening. Quick shout out to my wife Katie and daughter Brooke for uh, pushing me toward doing this. I really appreciate you guys. Thanks for listening. See you next time.